Civil War ended in 1865, but certainly not the issues that caused it. One manifestation of racial animosity that lingered well into the 20th century was the sundown town. We'll find out more about those peculiar institutions from James Lowen, author of the first history of the sundown town, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R dot com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with James Lowen about historic sites of the Civil War and textbooks of American history and other subjects that touch on the lack of good history education in America. James, we're talking about particularly about textbooks. I thought one of the things that I see in the textbooks that are presented to college professors uh, that are being sold to them by by the textbook companies is an increasing emphasis on technology, uh, sometimes at the expense of content. Do you see this happening? Oh, yeah. But again, it comes back to the fact that so many people teaching these courses didn't have any preparation in history. I'm sure Coach DeMola never took a history course in college. And it turns out that 15% of all the people teaching high school history uh, never had a single course in it in college. And you can't believe this would happen in any other subject, that a chemistry teacher, for instance, would never have had a single chemistry course in college or, or a math teacher or, or even an English teacher. In fact, I think we all have to have at least one course in English just to graduate from college. So... Uh, these folks want the easiest way out, and so the textbook uh, companies compete by, in a way by technology. They compete by offering what's called in the trade ancillaries. So if you adopt my book, says McGraw-Hill, and uh, my book costs $93 a copy. I mean, it's amazing how expensive some of these books are. They've now broken the $100 mark in some cases. And, and therefore, you buy 120 books for your four classes of, of 30 students each, well, that's a bunch of money. We will give you a CD-ROM that has all the test questions you'll ever need. You'll never have to think, 
what is important? What should I test on? Because we're going to give you 10,000 test questions. Furthermore, you never have to worry about students uh, saving it and telling the next year's students what to use because you've got so many of them that you can use And we've got a program that will generate this randomly. We'll select a batch of test of items for this year, and then you just uh, select randomly a different batch of items next year. They're all multiple choice, of course, so they all grade themselves, so you don't have to spend any time uh, even thinking about what the right answers are, let alone uh, giving students credit or, or partial credit for an essay. Of course, the students don't learn anything, especially they don't learn how to read, write, think, put, put together evidence or anything like that when they're answering multiple choice questions. Then we're going to also provide, because you're adopting our book, uh, a batch of videos. And uh, some of this stuff is on our website, and some of it we'll send you in, in uh, again, CD-ROMs. So that if things get slow or you haven't prepared your next class, blam, you can show a video, and that will take care of it. And then we'll even supply you with lectures, lecture notes that you can give, complete with PowerPoint presentations so that uh, your major points of the lecture will be made for you on the, on the TV screen or, or uh, projection, however you are handling PowerPoint. So you don't even have to think about what you're going to say. It, it's a dream come true. Just show up and it's all done for you. Yes. I, I, what I personally find so discouraging in this, the, the college textbook market is very similar, I think, to the high school market. Uh, it is the, the bright-eyed eagerness of the textbook representatives when they come knocking on the office door and they have samples of these new materials and the CDs and everything that goes with it. And... They're very excited about it and very yeah. eager to, to share it with you, but it's very rare that they want to talk any history, that they know any history. Well, yeah, they don't, and of course, how could they in that they're selling not only, they'll leave you and then they'll go off to the chemistry department and try to sell the chemistry text. Well, that's right. And then they'll sell the math text. So that's understandable in a way, uh, but it is discouraging. I've, I've, I've had those same representatives visit me. It is discouraging that they are assume that you too will be excited by all the work that you get to not do. Yes, yeah. You know, it just kind of puts you down. You, of course, wouldn't want to think about your course. You wouldn't want to make it good. You wouldn't want to uh, be serious about teaching. I, I think it's a point of pride. Many of the colleagues I talk to uh, will, will discuss the fact that they always give essay exams, that they don't uh, yeah. rely on multiple choice. That well, that's they do make that's, the uh, Not all colleges are like that, I can tell you. Uh, I, I, that may be the case. We're, we're, we're trying to fight the good fight here and yeah. keep students thinking. Uh, it does take more work to grade them. That, that's certainly true. Yeah. Now, the uh, I, there's lots to say, uh, certainly about the issues of textbooks. I, I hate to move on uh, sure. prematurely, but I do want to ask you about a, a project you're working on currently. Uh, you and I have corresponded a bit, and you said you're writing about uh, sundown towns. Yes, yeah. and sundown towns are, it turns out, also a product of this Nader period, this reactionary period, 1890 to 1940. Um, what, what is a sundown town? Well, a sundown town is a town that is all white on purpose. And they get the name from the fact that many of them, uh, including some in western North Carolina and uh, a whole bunch in the Midwest and many in California and all across the country, uh, had signs at their city limits typically saying, nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in Pena or whatever the name of the count, uh, town or county. There are whole uh, sundown counties in Appalachia and in, in the Midwest and and in uh, uh, California and Oregon as well. Um, a lot of people, as soon as they hear about this, they say, oh, yeah, down south. Well, no, uh, the traditional south didn't have any sundown towns. I've, did a, I've done a, 
uh, exhaustive study of Mississippi in this regard, for instance. And I've located exactly three sundown towns, two of which are essentially in Tennessee, Alabama. They're right up there in the northeast corner, and they're really part of Appalachia. And the other one is a town of 300 people. Well, you wouldn't even notice a town, a, a sundown town of 300 people in Illinois. In Illinois, which is, um, as I mentioned, my home state, I've done more research on this subject than in any other single state. And I believe I've located in Illinois 672, excuse me, that's not correct, 472 sundown towns. Now, that's a heck of a lot of towns. In fact, it, I've looked at every incorporated municipality larger than 1,000, all the way up to Chicago. There are 700 such towns, so if 472 of them were sundown towns, that means more than two-thirds, a 70% majority, uh, kept out blacks. And, and many did so violently. That is, in many cases, they threw them all out between 1890 and 1940 at the point of a gun, burning them out, uh, expelling them violently. So that's, that's what this book is about. And this is, as you say, it's counterintuitive. It's not what people expect to hear. But the rural Midwest is thus, uh, in terms of individual animosity toward African Americans, a worse place than the Deep South. Well, in some ways it is. Now, I, I try not to play this game of, you know, which was more racist. Um, I, in, one, in, in a sense, legal, uh, literally, uh, you can't get much more racist than refusing to allow someone even to be in your social system, even to be in your, your community. Um, although, of course, Nazi Germany trumped that by, by not only... Nazi Germany developed sundown towns vis-a-vis Jews uh, between 1934 and 1936, a number of towns and cities in Nazi Germany put up signs modeled after our sundown town signs uh, saying uh, Jews uh, do not remain after sundown in, in the name of t- city. But interestingly, Hitler in 1936 ordered all these signs removed because of the Berlin Olympics. And he didn't want folks to see them and then publicize it and give Germany, um, a, shall we say, a black eye. And what's really interesting about that to me is that in 1932, we hosted the Olympics. It was, of course, in Los Angeles. And 80% anyway of Los Angeles' suburbs were sundown towns, and some of them had signs. And many independent uh, towns in California were sundown towns with signs. And you never heard any directive from, from Washington or from Sacramento or from any other government saying, take down those signs. So, so at least we're not hypocritical about our... our uh... Yeah. Bad behavior. Well, I have to say, of course, in 19, beginning in 1938 or even earlier, Hitler trumped us and went certainly one step further than, than we ever have in, in just trying to exterminate a minority group. But in terms of sundown towns, uh, we actually led uh, the Germans. So I've actually found all kinds of these in Oregon, in, in uh, Montana, in, in Wisconsin, in places you would... You would, I, I never expected to find them. I thought when I went to write this book that I would locate about 10 of these in Illinois and maybe 50 of them across the country. And instead I've located thousands, and there are thousands more still to be located. This, uh, I, I first encountered this while working on an, an exhibit, uh, a temporary exhibit about the Lincoln Highway, which was the first transcontinental yeah. motor route, not really an actual highway, but a, a route on a map. Right. Well, they kind of numbered it all the way across. Yeah. Right. You you could, by the end of World War One, you could theoretically follow this guidebook and get from New York City to San Francisco yeah. by car. And we we did an exhibit at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne about this highway, which was a memorial to Abraham Lincoln. And there are still some signs you can trace. It's mostly U.S. Route 30 today. 
Well, one of the artifacts we came across was a guidebook called The Bronze American, which was a publication for African-American travelers, and it was a guide telling them where it was safe to stop as they right. drove across the country. Right. And it indicated, of course, there were many places in Indiana, in Ohio, in Illinois, that it was not safe to stop in, and this was published in the 1950s. I had to admit I was astonished. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Uh, well, I was amazed, uh, and there's at least three others of those guidebooks. I wish you and I had had this conversation uh, half a year ago because I would have gotten a hold of this thing and put it into my book. Um, but there's at least three other publications just like it. One of them is called the Green Book or something like that. And it is on display, actually, at the Smithsonian of the National Museum of American History right now where they have a, a new exhibit about transportation in America that uh, talks about Route 66 and about various other highways, and it does give attention to this same phenomenon. But I had an aha reaction um, one evening, actually in my hometown of Decatur. Now, I haven't spent much time in Decatur since I went off to college way back in 1960, but I was invited back in 2002, I think it was, um, to be the, the kickoff speaker for what's called the Decatur Writers' Conference because, like my teacher told me, is. Uh, made me one of the best-selling writers ever to come out of Decatur. And so I was happy. I gave a talk about lies my teacher told me. And then at the end of it, I told people about this new project I was, I was then uh, working on uh, about sundown towns and all-white towns and all-white on purpose. And if they knew anything about it, would they come down and talk with me? Well, more than 20 people came down. And they told me that every little town around Decatur, now I grew up in Decatur. It's an industrial town of about 60 to 90,000, depending on the decade. Um, and it's an interracial town, of course. It has its segregation, and, and blacks were in particular not allowed to live on the west side of town where I lived. Um, but that's mere segregation. We're not talking about that. We're talking about total exclusion. It turns out that every little town around Decatur, towns of 500 and 1,000 and 1,200 and so on, had passed an ordinance or had one way or another absolutely defined itself as a, as a sundown town. And that just amazed me. Well, I think our listeners will want to pursue this. It's a little outside the era of the Civil War, but it points out how in many ways the, the issues of the Civil War are still with us, and sometimes in unexpected places like rural Illinois. Or Let me Indiana. make a connection, if I might. Well, um, we're, we're getting near our end, so I'll ask you to oh. go quickly, but please do. Okay. Well, Anna, Illinois, which is way down south in Illinois, uh, is, is known today as Ain't No Niggers Allowed, Anna, A-N-N-A. But Anna had blacks during the Civil War, uh, they were put there as kind of refugees from the fighting in Mississippi and such by the federal government. They were hired out to help pick uh, apples and such in the apple orchards around there. And they got driven out in 1863 or 4 by some of the white racists in Anna. And the federal government then investigated and jailed some of those folks for the rest of the war. Well, then in 1909, Anna did the same thing. It drove out its black population, and Anna has no black population today. And nobody investigated. Federal, state county or, or local. And that, that shows the difference then between 1863 and 1909. Well, one, one can hope that by 2009 things will have changed somewhat uh, across America. But in the meantime, I will urge our listeners to take a look at Lies Across America and Lies My Teacher Told Me, and especially uh, this book on Sundown Towns. This is uh, forthcoming? It will come out on September 1st. September 1st of 2005. Please take a look at it. James Lone, thanks so much for being our guest today. It's a pleasure talking to you. It's been fun for me. Thank you. This is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio.